Welcome everyone to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan, joined by co-host Corey, who is back in action here in studio and ready to discuss my recent interviews. Yeah, so uh, first of all, well done on the four parts of the Street Views series. Thank you. Um, it was strange. It was an interesting experience for me to be on just on the listening end. This was very much a solo effort because as some of our listeners may know, you and I don't live uh, within easy driving distance. So this was one that you you took the reins on yourself and and did independently. And it was just really interesting to just to be able to sit back and listen to it as a as a listener and as someone who has a little bit of an inside scoop on on the work that you've been doing and who's been learning about safe supply along with you as we've been doing this show. So that was really wild just to be able to sit back and listen and kind of formulate my own questions. And that's what we're going to do today is just talk about, um, we thought it, it needed some reflection, needed some discussion after the fact to do what you did and have, and have conversations with people who are receiving safe supply in our province. I mean, you occasionally will see that on the news, um, in like a, news friendly 30 second soundbite, but to be mm-hmm. able to give people a bit of a platform and, and, a and an opportunity to, to say what they want to say about safe supply and about their lives, I think is pretty, pretty cool, pretty special. So, and I thought you handled it really sensitively and, uh, and courageously. Thank you. So I wanted to know, and, and I'm sure people want to know what, what was that like for you? It's a very different type of interview to be doing. We haven't done anything where it's like where you're kind of candidly approaching someone who hasn't prepared for the interview. What was yeah. it like? Well, um, first off, I should say that I, I have an advantage in this uh, this type of work that I'm doing. I've taken a position just a couple months ago with a pharmacy that works closely with the Urban Outreach Program here in Kelowna. And it's a fantastic little independent pharmacy. Uh, called Juniper, and uh, it's run by a couple of individuals who are uh, very experienced uh, w- with this demographic. They're very experienced with the politics and uh, just the technicalities of how things work that way. And so what it did was it, it, it it's provided me with an opportunity to get to know some of these people who are very much on the outskirts. Most of them are living in shelters and many of them are on uh, opiate agonist therapy and a combined kind of take-home supply of uh, usually dilated tablets that could be crushed, they could be mm-hmm. injected, uh, snorted, etc. So this position and uh, the owners of the store graciously allowed me to, you know, basically ask people. And I, I have mm-hmm. built a, a relationship with with some of these people, so. It wasn't, I mean, I've tried this before where I just went randomly kind of into the street and it didn't work out very well for a whole bunch of different reasons. I think it's important to be able to have some kind of, uh, y- you need a little bit of trust. Like they have mm-hmm. to see, people need to see that you're, you know, I think it helps that I'm a pharmacist. I think it helps that uh, they've seen my face and already talked to me. Uh, they know I'm not a, a cop <laughs> that that helps tremendously, and w- what I was able to do there is is basically as people came into the store, 
I was able to ask them if they, you know, had a few minutes. And then I, uh, again, the, the store owners graciously allowed me to, to have a space that was quiet enough, secluded enough so that, you know, I could get some audio that was, that was useful and could be presented in a, in a way that could be understood. But, um, there's been a lot of positive response from these interviews. I think some of the people who who listened, uh, it just kind of, it, it didn't land. But most of the people, I would say overwhelmingly, most of the people, it did land. And they, they actually appreciated the way it was done because the lower quality audio, uh, the setting, the it, it sort of added a, a level of, uh, realism to it that you wouldn't get, like you said, in a, in a new segment or something like mm-hmm, that. So, mm-hmm. and I, I really, I wanted to go in doing my best to stay objective and, and to learn. I still ended up asking some leading questions and, uh, that's something that I'm, I'm going to have to work on, you know, because I have certain ideas about how things should go. And, uh, you know, the, the way you, a- you ask a question, of course, can significantly affect the answer that you receive. So I'll do a better job of that next time around. And I think as a team, we can figure out a way of doing this a little bit better, but it was a good first go around and I was happy with it. I kept the, I kept the questions fairly straightforward so that I could get responses that would advance, not just my understanding of what, of what these people are are dealing with when they're living in a shelter or, or, or trying to match a fentanyl dose with what we're offering as safe supply. So I learned quite a bit. I learned more than I thought. And mm-hmm. some of the responses, uh, I we're definitely going to have to do more to, to get more of a feel of it. But, uh, I was able to connect, um, especially with the, the street view number four, that uh that younger guy i mean jesus i i i think i mean there is something in him that is very special like i i i i believe that if his circumstances were different i think what you're looking at there is probably like a a talented artist of some kind he's got a creative uh mind that like I, you can just see it trying to like he's trying to f- to fight through this, the, the haze, first of all, of the, the, the heavy amount, the heavy dose of drugs that he's under, but then also, um, you know, uh, learning disabilities that are not being, you know, it's hard to address properly when you're, you're on that level of opiates. And, but I mean, I learned a lot and uh, there's a few things that I wanted to run past you. And, uh, so I think this would be good. We'll, we'll just kind of go over things and, uh, yeah, discuss it point by point. Yep. And then I have some more questions for you or at least things to, to talk about, but let's go for it. Okay. Sounds good. So the first thing that I thought was uh, really interesting uh, with the, 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 the first interview was uh, this was a, a, an opportunity with somebody who was not on a significantly comparably high dose of narcotics or, or, or any kind of like he was on opiates, but as you could tell, probably from the interview, you know, he, he, his cognition was, he was very oh, much yeah. there and, uh, uh, his story is interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, 
having your daughter die from a fentanyl overdose and then deciding in your sorrow and grief that you're going to follow her by mm-hmm. doing fentanyl in a, in an attempt to understand what she was doing and also possibly take your own life. I thought that was, I mean, I've never heard such a thing before. I, I, what did you think of, of that statement? Yeah. Well, and like you said, he, um, right off the bat, well, after listening to all four of them, he struck me as being like the most composed or most what we would think of as like socially normative, right. you know, in terms of how he conducted the dialogue. Yet, that's such a unbelievably heavy thing to admit to and to say. Keep in mind, I mean, I just basically tapped this guy on the shoulder and was yeah. like, "Hey, do you you know do you have five minutes?" Uh, yeah. And and he's like, "Yeah, sure, let's talk." You know, so it's not like this guy, we just sat down. He knows me a little, he knows me a little, but he was, he was willing to just, you know, I mean, that, that's quite a, a vulnerable statement to make and, Mm -hmm. uh, very impressive. Also the, the other insights he had, but, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's a testament to, how little we know about people's stories when we pass judgment, like in passing, right? Uh, what's actually going on with someone? What's actually motivating someone? I don't think anyone would take a wild guess that that would be someone's story that they're that they made some deliberate choices to understand the their child and the loss of their child. Um, grief is such a powerful thing. I, you know, in a meeting this week, I was talking about how grief and recovery are, are have such similarities and we don't have to get into all of that, but I think that they do and there, and grief and addiction. Um, there's a relationship there too, for sure. Oh, hand in hand. Yeah. The other thing that was so interesting about this individual was his, and we'll get into it a little bit more in our discussion. I'm assuming about mandatory treatment is that he was very much at the same time in, in favor of mm-hmm. mandatory treatment. Uh, and he, his answer to that given his life experience, it was kind of surprising to me. I thought so as well, but it made me think, and I I need to think about this a little more. And I mean, I, I did pose that question throughout the series of interviews and received different answers. But uh, some of which, again, I think, uh, especially towards the end there, I think I, I posed in a way that was very leading. But, and I've discussed it since with uh, my significant other, who's a, a doctor, and and her feelings towards patients sometimes is that her belief is that it's not always, it's not always the drugs. It's not always even the mental, uh, uh, the mental health issues. It's actually more, in many cases, a developmental issue, where you could see, and and I really see this now, where it's it's almost like some some people have made it to a certain level where it might be, uh, it could be eleven. Let's say. They're, they're operating at the level of an 11 year old emotionally and in, intellectually. And that's, that's if you took the drugs away and, and with, yeah, maybe there is some mental health issues on top of that or whatever, but 
if you set those things aside, those developmental issues really do have a huge impact on that individual's ability to make good decisions, regardless of the circumstances that, that they're in. And this becomes an ethics problem that could be argued forever, I think. But it, 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 it does make me think, and when he, when he was talking about how some people are just never going to, they're never going to get out without some kind of significant, you know, base, it, it has to be more than hand-holding almost. And like my statement towards the end was, and, I, and this is how I feel about it, is, is that personally for me as an individual, I would rather die than be forced into a, a, a program like that against my, you know, I, I considered a personal human rights violation in many ways, not just to be subjected to mandatory treatment, but also that there's a, a paternal entity that's, that's telling me what I can and can't do with my body. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have several issues with that, but that's me, you know, and uh, there's all sorts of different people out there. So I, I mean, I'm still digesting that. What were your thoughts after, after that response? It definitely got me thinking about it as well. And then in part three, I got thinking about it more because the lady you spoke to had an opposing view to mandatory mm-hmm. treatment, which has been much more similar to my view is that people need to be ready. People need to, there needs to be some, some will and motivation or something has to click. And she has experience, like she has not just personal experience, but she's, you know, she has worked in several facilities and seen what happens when, yeah. And we know what the data says too. So I, that point I think is, is solid. Like uh, y- your chances of having a successful experience in treatment, those chances go way down. It looks like if you are forced into it, that seems to be the mm-hmm. case. So I think we can agree on that, but please go on. Yeah, totally agree on that. I think what it highlighted for me is the difference between whether or not you think some people will never be ready or never be willing to step into it or make a change. And so if you believe in mandatory treatment, the other question is, is do we have any faith in the systems that are in place or in the policymakers that are in place um, or the options that we have that, that that treatment, that that mandatory treatment would even be effective or would be, would, would offer people what they needed. Those are two different discussions, whether or not someone, you know, <clears throat> will never be ready. They'll, if they're, as long as they're using, they'll always avoid getting help or always avoid making the change, or maybe something will click and they will be ready. But if they are ready, or if their hand is forced, what is the system that they're going to walk into? Will it be as dysfunctional as some of the things that we have seen firsthand Will it be as dysfunctional as we know some of the treatment programs in that are a revolving door in our in North America, where there's profits to be had, where there are uh, where it's a twelve step model and the person doesn't subscribe to that twelve step model? I mean, there are, and that's just five uh, percent of the issues that maybe may come up that may, could make it a an unsuccessful program. So. I think for me, it highlighted the fact that, well, even if, even if for some people forcing their hand, if it was a good thing, I don't have any confidence that the system would, would be there to receive them in a holistic, healthy, productive way. 
Yeah, that's the same conclusion I was I was forced to come to as well. And it was the first hurdle. I mean, let's say, like you said, we're we're gonna get on board with this. And so you've you you somehow have to make a decision that you know you, so we're going to have to have a, a team of individuals. It's the same as uh, throwing somebody in jail. There has to be a judge who and a jury, people who we feel as a society are qualified to make that decision, to take that person's rights and autonomy away. Now, let's say we go back to the person who this might be, you know, if you, if you look at forced treatment as, a, as an option, it might be a, an option for people who are just, they don't appear to have any chance of making it on their own. They don't have the tools. They don't have the resources. They just never had the hand they got dealt in life was, it was too, too difficult to play. And so we decide somehow we're going to put together a team to do that. That's hard enough. So you do that, you take this person's autonomy away and then you're right. I mean, I don't have, personally, I have no faith that there's any program right now outside of, you, we would have to basically commit social resources on an epic scale. And, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. what you're essentially doing at that point is, is your handholding. You're, you're going to have to handhold and you're going to have to, you're going to have to assign somebody basically to help this person probably forever because if they were to if they if they lacked the developmental ability to you know choose to try a different route like uh, maybe try detox to treatment then what are the chances if you force them to go to treatment and they get out on the other side i mean how many of those people are are going to relapse within a week mm -hmm. and how much more dangerous have you made that relapse really so it's yeah it's 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 such a tough it's such a tough call to make and 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 i i think it would be a lot easier if if we had if we had facilities and the let's say we had facilities that were 25 percent successful and i don't mean at keeping people sober for a year like many of them, that's what they claim their success rate is that you, if you if you abstain from mood altering substances for a year, they call that a success. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about these people turning their life around so that, you know, a lot of times this is going to mean learning how to live without drugs, learning how to cope in society, stress management, emotional regulation, job skills, you know, the list goes on and on. So. I don't know, man. <laughs> monumental. Uh, that would be a monumental undertaking. Yeah. The other observation, and, and I, I was going to preface it by saying, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing 12 step and we're not. And, and I don't think that we do, but we have just challenged it at times on our show. But if you, <laughs> if you do, if you do subscribe to that idea that we are powerless, <laughs> then the mandatory treatment model becomes much more reasonable i think and it's just mm -hmm. interesting that that individual who was supportive of it was also supportive of the 12-step model yes and i think there is a correlation there if you polled people who were met who uh, polled people who had lived experience with addiction and recovery and 
for those who had experienced recovery and had done it via 12 step, I bet you they might be more supportive generally than, than those who weren't 12 step people. Yep. That's where my money would, uh, would go there as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that's, that's kind of the crux of it, right? I mean, yeah. if you, if you believe in these concepts like, uh, uh, rock bottom and, uh, powerlessness, which we do not, <laughs> right. Um, that that's all. I mean, but I think there's something to be said for 12 steps because there is a, obviously there's a, 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 a portion of our society that leaves that they, that they have, that they fit the criteria for that paradigm to work for them. Yeah. And that's great. I mean, there's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with that. I, the problem I guess is where is, is the one that we've been facing in Canada for a long time and much more so in the States where that paradigm has become intertwined with not just the medical approach to this problem, but also the legal approach to this problem. You know, I mean, in yeah. the States, they don't, they're not messing around with mandatory treatment. It's just, they give you a deal you can't refuse. You're 10 years in prison <laughs> <laughs> or it's 18 months at a Bible camp or whatever, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, and I don't think that would exist without that, without the, you know, the historical, the, the precedent set by the 12 step model, I guess. For sure. For sure. Now, I, I know we weren't planning on going through it uh, episode by episode, but can we lead that into part two? Of course. We can do whatever we want because this is our show. <laughs> just because it, it, it just got me thinking chronologically about it. And then I got thinking about, as we were talking here, about, about the individual in part two, who one of the most fascinating individuals I've heard speak about this in, in a long time as well, as someone who is living completely off the grid. I can't recall how many years they said that they had been living off the grid a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. No ID, no, uh, no credit cards, just a cash only existence, I guess. And yeah, yeah pretty interesting. I mean, I, I, I like her story about uh, being downtown East side and, and, how, uh, you know, being approached by a Buddhist monk and all that. And, yeah. uh, I thought it was really interesting how it kind of lines up with a lot of Buddhism. Like if you, if you just set the drugs aside for a little bit, I mean, Jesus would kind of be, if you look, or the Buddha would kind of be in that, that subset of people, right? He'd just be mm -hmm. completely uninterested in material possessions and only there to, to help people. What they reminded me of was Jack Kerouac, who I is probably my favorite, like all time favorite author or favorite kind of classic American author and was a, in all of his writing was very much promoting his, you know, or grappling with Buddhism and grappling with a simple life that was free of, of possessions and free of love and, and just striving for simplicity, but was also a tormented soul uh was also full of pain and and trauma and was an alcoholic and kerouac was uh as with each book that he wrote his alcoholism and his substance use became much more obvious and but my favorite of his books is the dharma bums where he's really discovering buddhism and drinking a lot and he goes off <laughs> in, into the cascade mountains of washington state and 
to live in isolation as a fire watcher. And, uh, and th- that individual, that was kind of where I went with it. Cause I thought this is, and Kerouac got, got romanticized as being like this, you know, this founder of this movement of mm-hmm. writers and a, a cultural movement. But then you've got someone who's present day and it looks a little bit different and it looks like there's a lot more grit to it than we, what we romanticize. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's not an easy life by any means. No. And not not that the, if you're a, a Buddhist and you're you're trying to follow the eight the eightfold path, I think that is a, a very difficult task on its own. It is interesting though because there's there's been a few different kind of influential people that I could think of over the years who have very much been involved, uh, been uh, 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 you know, an active uh, participant in Buddhism, and also had uh, either a tremendous drug issue or a, or a problem with alcohol at the same time. Yeah, and it and it's like to me, it kind of makes sense. Like that that just because you uh, are living amidst chaos or living amidst substance use or in, other individuals who are using substance and or living off the grid, that you wouldn't be seeking out or feel desirous of having some serenity and some right. peace. Yeah. Uh, maybe the, like Alan Watts comes to mind uh, for sure. Right. For sure. I mean, here's a guy who, uh, a, a brilliant, uh, charismatic, you know, he had many followers. He had his own interesting hybrid philosophy mm-hmm. that was heavily influenced by Buddhism but he, he, you know, he effectively, I don't know if this is true or not. There's some debate about the authenticity of how he died and everything, but it's believed that he, he ended up drinking himself to death. Mm-hmm. Um, but before he was confronted about that several times and he, he just, he was like, this is, he said, this is my life. It's my decision. This is what I'm, this is what I'm interested in doing. And Basically, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he, the, the, he he had some quote about, uh, I think he died in his 50s, early 50s, something like that. And he had some quote about being, uh, yeah, this is a good time. It's a good time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, <laughs> like I've, I've done what I needed to do here and uh, I'm happy with uh, where I've got to. And uh, I think it's a good time. And he just shortly after that, he died. So, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. But I, I also thought, um, and this is just more of an observation, what a vulnerable individual. Obviously a resilient individual and a survivor, but yeah. but but very vulnerable. Yeah. And very much, talk, I mean, the epitome of someone who's on the margins of, of our society in every which way. Absolutely, virtually. yeah. What did you think about, uh, like, were you aware of the term farming or being farmed? I was aware I've not heard that term, but I was aware of the action that that people and for anyone who missed that in our, in your episode, it was, it was, uh, the idea that someone ODs or someone is, is down from their substance and, and then people come and lift their possessions off them and steal from them. Yeah. Well, they were in these interviews. And I, I've talked to some people outside of, of these interviews to get a more candid kind of understanding of it. But there, there's a name for these individuals that I, I 
I haven't heard yet. There's an actual slang term for them, but they are actual predators who, who, from what I understand, they'll have two different supplies of drugs. So they'll be selling down and which is usually, you know, uh, it might be called heroin, but of course, almost all heroin now is fentanyl. Yeah. But the, the benzo dope, the, the fentanyl that's mixed with, with benzos and uh, lanocaine and all sorts of different stuff that they're putting in there, they, are, they have developed a skill set where they will, they'll have their clientele that they normally sell to. And then when they see somebody that's particularly vulnerable and may have something like some valuables, they will sell them the other kind of fentanyl mm -hmm. and then they'll just hang out with them for a little bit. Maybe they'll both use the drug at the same time. The person who gets the extra strong fentanyl that's got uh, the benzos in or whatever nods off in such a way that they're not only unconscious, but because of the benzos, it, it, there's an uh, amnesia Mm -hmm. uh, like you, 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 you can barely recall what happened with the, the amount of, you know, that, that cocktail. And, um, I was talking to, it, it was interesting the day, the day after I did these interviews in the alley, right next to our store, uh, one of our clients got farmed right down till they took her panties and her bra she was completely naked laying in an alley. That's mm -hmm. how, that's how she woke up that morning. And it was, uh, I was, I said, well, what, you know, what, what was the last thing you remember? And she said, I, there's this guy and, uh, you know, there was an exchange that happened for drugs. And all I can remember is, uh, I started to nod off and I had this blurry kind of I thought that maybe he was going through my things and then I don't remember anything. So the idea that there's actual professional farmers out there who mm -hmm. are going around and actually preying on people. And usually they they'll take everything. They won't take all your clothes. So I don't know what happened there. I don't want to know, but it's, when I first started uh, uh, working at the store, I was like, how on earth can these people uh, who are living in the shelter possibly function? Because I think two weeks is like the longest anyone ever keeps a phone. Mm -hmm. And even in the shelter, you're getting robbed all the time. When you're on the street, I mean, I, I, I've been there, what, almost two months now. And I know people who have been robbed of all their possessions three times in that time. Wow. Like, so imagine wow. having your ID, like just everything taken it, it, it's your shoes, even sometimes. And sometimes apparently your entire clothes and the whole works, but to add that on top of the, the, the challenges that you're facing already, I just, it, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's hard to, to, to wrap the mind around, but Judging by the number of people I see losing their possessions, I think that uh, the, the gentleman who was talking about this as a as something that happens often and is currently happening more often than ever, I think he's right. I, I think this is very prevalent right now. Yeah, and I would imagine it, it makes me think that uh, the idea of what happened in Vancouver 
this past spring of of tearing apart these camps and and isolating people and sending them out breaking apart what small communities they have where they might be linked up with some people that are keeping them safe in some way or another um that makes people even more vulnerable to to something like this where if, if they are isolated if they don't have a some kind of a safety net uh of someone who's going to watch their back that's just horrific though yeah no you're absolutely right you you cannot be on your own no you just won't make it you need most of the time not most but many times the people who you think are your friends will also rob you you know mm-hmm. and so it it's uh you you got to work hard to find a community that you can trust and then yeah when you get that community broken up um you gotta start from scratch again which means you're probably going to take a tremendous beating to get back to where you were so yeah, yeah that's that's definitely part of it as well there was also uh some confirmation about the i, I mean i don't know again the authenticity of the numbers but we know that some of this safe supply is getting sold mm-hmm. and then that money is being used to purchase more powerful street drugs. So the thing I need to dig into more and, and would be good to have more information on is how much of that is going on, you know? Yeah. Because I think if, if this model of safe supply that we're doing right now, that does have but one of the problems with it is that we don't have the the drugs that we manufacture right now are not cutting it as far as they're not concentrated enough. They're not strong enough. They don't, you know, I think even the, di- the, the inject the heroin injection program that we have here, maybe that is, is what it would take, but you know, that's something where you got to show up three times a day. You're asking too much right there. So it's, I don't know, man, like even if we bring this current model with the current supplies and, and equipment that's being used, the medications that we've chosen, even if we bring it up to a hundred percent, it still might not work because fentanyl is so fucking powerful. Yeah. And, uh, man, what do we, you know, what, what's the answer to that, Corey? What do we do about, you know, how do we match this? Do we need to come up with new pharmaceuticals that are, uh, you know, a safe supply, but that, that, or, or maybe we just need to provide uh fentanyl in, in the same form, only pharmaceutically, um, approved, you know, we, what about that? What about, what about that idea? That? Yeah. I, you know, seeing what I'm seeing and the ridiculous amount of like, for one thing, I don't know if it's possible to counter fentanyl with a safe supply of oral anything. Right. I I just don't know if that's going to work. I mean, we are maxed out as far as I'm concerned. If we, I mean, I don't know how much more the thing about taking drugs orally is they go through something called first pass metabolism, which means that they go through your, the portal vein of your liver, they get processed and then they get recirculated. Mm -hmm. So that's a different way of taking drugs than if you use something that's, you know, say through the skin or, or a needle, 
mm-hmm. both those me- methods bypass first pass metabolism. That's where you get your, you know, that spike. So that the real high that people are after is usually from, you know, getting around the oral route or uh, like nasally that'll work or smoking mm-hmm. will, will do it too. But I mean, maybe that would be more realistic, providing uh, a fentanyl a fentanyl product that can be smoked and uh, injected, and very much regulated on the on the dose. I don't that's know, an, man. That's an interesting idea. I think there will have to be a, a creative look at that, and and I don't think we can. I don't think we can judge the route that people are going to use their drug to 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 get them through right now. And then also expect them to kind of just use the safe supply, just use it orally, just use it as we say. It might for some individuals, it might take more than that. So yeah, maybe maybe what you're saying is is the most reasonable option. Cause yeah, like you said, we're up against a huge beast in in fentanyl right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get uh, comments all the time on uh on Facebook about you know, the one of the most common ones is uh we got to go after the dealers. We got to go after the dealers. We got to death sentences for dealers. There's a bunch of problems with that. Spend some time looking into the research that's been done on uh, maximizing prison sentences and even capital punishment. There's, I think, 33 countries in the world who have capital punishment for drug offenses. It does nothing. It right. does nothing to curb addiction. It does nothing to curb the importing and exporting of drugs. No. So your first problem mm-hmm. is that no matter how severe you make the punishment right up until death, it does not stop the problem. Okay. Yeah. So that's a little bit of an issue. Now uh, we've got China supplying, I think they're still supplying 90% of either, you know, ready to go fentanyl and press tablets or fentanyl precursors or fentanyl powder. That's going to Mexico. Some of the precursors are coming up from India. So there's these outside countries who are, that's where most of these products are coming. And they're, I mean, for God's sake, like if you're able to get a kilogram of pure fentanyl into the United States, you've just made yourself a tremendous amount of money. Yeah. And a kilogram can be shipped in the mail, folks. Like how, how do you... Like, I I mean, I was thinking about it last night outside of, okay, let's say Canada just went wild. We're going to flip out. We're going to, anybody caught with anything that's got fentanyl, you're getting executed immediately. Any country suspected of importing or exporting fentanyl products or precursors to Canada, we're going to war. Going to war right now, and we're going to take our three F 18s from 1994. We're going to fly them over there and we're going to start attacking you. And, uh, you yeah. know, Canada can't do shit against, you know, against these. We don't have the clout, the, the numbers, the military. We don't have what it takes to, to deal with that problem at all. The only ones who could, who could, pro- to, if you want to take it to, the, to that level, and your idea is to stop the dealer. Then I think realistically, what you're talking about is a full scale war. And that means mm-hmm. that the US would have to declare that for India, China, and Mexico, they're going to trace back the source. They're going to, if their governments cannot get control of this problem within whatever time frame they give them, 
then they're sending over the entire force of their military and they're bombing carpet bombing any area suspected like that's what it would take i think yeah. to to actually maybe slow this problem using that that kind of an approach yeah yeah and the, the other thing is like the 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 low level dealers the people who are dealing on a on a street or in a community level are also in probably in many cases, people who are marginalized themselves or who oh, are struggling themselves. Almost most the street level dealers are supporting their own habit. That's all they're doing. Mm -hmm. So kill them if you want. It's not going to make yeah. a goddamn difference. No, no. Yeah. Should we talk about number three? Yeah, she was, uh, she's a fantastic lady. My God. This one, Street Views number three was probably my favorite. I listened to it twice in a row, just like it. And it was, I think the longest one, but I just, I had to give it two full listens back to back. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought she was outstanding and just, uh, it was a painful conversation. I found it to be a really, it was the one that made me feel the most sad. Mm. Um, or at least it, just, it brought up the most feeling in me. What a tough life what a lot of pain and trauma she had been through being through domestic violence, being through these, all of these fractured relationships. And I think she had a re a really remarkable perspective on what some things that make a difference in, in recovery and to the people who are experiencing addiction or homelessness. Uh, yeah. I thought she was just remarkable. Yeah. What was it like to talk to her? Well, again, here's a lady where, you know, I, I, after talking to her, I could say th this was somebody who at one time was probably living in a, a big house mm -hmm. uh, in suburbia uh, mm -hmm. with a, a family and very normal by, by most standards, at least from an outside point of view. She could be your neighbor. She could, you know, this. She, and so she had that going on. That was, she was living that kind of a life and then is now living in a shelter. And to me, that, that is a lot different than uh, some of these, uh, some of the younger people who live there because, you know, they may have lived in that kind of a, a neighborhood when they were young and, and maybe their parents threw them out early or whatever, but mm -hmm. she, she had the whole kind of white picket fence thing going on, uh, minus what sounds like a, I mean, sounds like her husband was a shitty person or whatever, but, um, I could see that in her, like, she's obviously, she's obviously an intelligent lady. And just to know that, like, I've, I've been to Cornerstone, I know what it's like in there. And, to be a woman in there, I think would be just, uh, I mean, I, I can't, I have no reference point to wrap my mind around what that would be like. I, I can think of what it would be like for myself to be in there and sure. Jesus, I would not be comfortable. I can tell you that. And it's not because it's just, it is a very unpredictable environment, you know, and most people are, you know, doing their best to, to keep their shit together, but things happen. And it's, uh, it's just, it's the nature of, of the shelter. Sometimes that you're going to have, uh, you're dealing with people who have 
you know, unmedicated mental illness, all sorts of different issues. Mm-hmm. So the idea of her trying to exist and uh, stay safe in that environment. And yet she maintains a level of dignity and optimism, yes. you know, yeah. that, that she doesn't have to, like, she could say fucking, you know, she could be complaining her ass off every day, but she doesn't. She comes in and she makes an effort to, you know, she's, she's polite. She's, uh, you know, she's a, she's a thoughtful lady and, uh, she was a, a pleasure to talk to. And, uh, I mean, her story did, did make me pretty sad. And, and unfortunately the, 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 the part about having for mothers, having their children taken away. Oh my God. It's, uh, there are so many people so many women who are living with that kind of uh, whatever you want to call it under those circumstances, I guess. And, and many of them, like I, I talked to a lady uh, the other day who had, she hadn't, ta- she hasn't even talked to her children in two years mm-hmm. and they, they live in the same city. Like, I mean, what must that be like? Yeah. And so, and this is what I had wanted to talk about with, with this episode as well was, she was someone who opposed the idea of mandatory treatment. She was critical of that, of that notion. Mm-hmm. And, um, she got talking about her, the fractured relationship with her kids. And she had that experience of, of losing, losing her kids or losing custody and, and then having this fractured relationship and the, the pain of that for her, that, that I can't even begin to understand. No. Yeah. But then, so then you, you think, okay, let's suppose that, that she specifically got put into a a situation of mandatory treatment. Is the system going to do anything about remedying or helping her with that fractured relationship? Maybe she'll get some counseling. Maybe there will be um, some social workers in place, or there's maybe there's some work to help aid in that process of healing those relationships. But like, that is such a powerful, probably powerful stressor for her Mm -hmm. and driver that if we don't look at that, if we don't tailor treatment to the individual's needs and the individual's traumas and what's, what is at the root there for them, then we're forget it. I don't think we stand a chance of, of actually helping. Well, I can tell you that I've talked to a couple of these ladies who who've lost their children, lost custody of their children. Mm -hmm. And the drugs, like I think uh, the the lady, uh, the the third lady I interviewed there, I think she said that she's put everything she can into her system and it's still not enough. Yeah. I, I believe her. And I believe that for these women who have lost their children, there will be no, I can see no way out of drugs for them. Absolutely 0% chance of, of getting away from drugs until there's some hope that they can remedy that relationship because the, that losing their children is so painful that they can be on, you know, I mean, they can take a dose that wouldn't, kill an elephant and I, and it, they'll still tears will still be streaming down their eyes when they talk about it. 
Yeah. There's yeah. nothing. The power of that desire and uh, the, the the love for their children. I mean, we know it's one of the the most significant factors in recovery is is having children in the first place as mm-hmm. a motivator. But and and she had said she had said that she lost the relationship with her children due to her relapses. Those were her words. Mm-hmm. And I also thought like I can't imagine how her how her kids must have felt like they this and this is how complex of an issue it is when we as a society pass judgment and stuff and and because it's probably not just the relapses there's probably a whole bunch of other complicated stuff in that relationship that 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 made them say enough enough's enough sure sure and i i just i want i don't want to I don't want to be hard on them without knowing the shit that they've probably seen and experienced too. But, but that loss of a relationship and that loss of connection, we know is it's a fact that that is a, that that is a huge driver. Mm -hmm. Also the way that some of these individuals describe themselves, these moms, especially who've lost Mm -hmm. their children, the, the guilt and shame they feel over that, like, I mean, I'm a piece of shit. That's why mm-hmm. I can't see my children because mm-hmm. I'm a fucking junkie piece of shit who lives on the street. So imagine, imagine that's the rhetoric playing in your mind. And then yeah. you're going to, you're going to try to get off drugs. Yeah. Fucking forget it. Forget it. It's not yeah. going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that was an interesting kind of, uh, look at the, the significance of that particular problem. Yeah. So again, it just made me think like to the, to the policymakers who think that this is a, will be a successful idea without looking at complex things like that, like parent child relationships in that context. Oh man, we don't, we don't have any idea (laughs) or they don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, there's a couple of times uh, I had to I had to go home and think, and after I did these interviews, and I think if it, if it wasn't for the last one there, because I was I was thinking to myself, we're wasting our fucking time. Mm-hmm. That we're not going to win. This is it. People are just going to keep dying. It doesn't matter what we do. There's no outside of like I said, uh, all out war with these uh, groups who are, uh, you know. And I was, I was kind of, there was an attitude. I was being kind of like, fuck, I, I kind of want to give up. Like, I don't want to think about this anymore. And then I talked to the, the last guy there and, and I know that he had just, uh, well, I don't know, but I suspect that he had kind of topped up just before he came in Mm -hmm. and I I could have not, I could have prevented that, but I made the decision to allow that to happen because I wanted him to be comfortable mm-hmm. enough to 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 do this because I knew it was going to be hard for him. But what was most miraculous about that experience for me is that through the haze of you know, whatever he had on board, we were able to, th- there was a moment during that, 
that interview where there was a real human connection there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't just some, you know, you can tell when you're really, you're discussing something. And when I, I looked at him and, and he, he was wearing sunglasses and, and at one point I could just see like a couple lines of tears coming down and I, I gave him an out on that, that, that question about, you know, what he wanted people to know about what it was like being him. And, and he could have easily just left it at that, but he didn't, he didn't. And he's like, and I forget what he said, like, no man, I, I like it. I want to, I, I want to answer this. And he was through the, the haze, through everything, through his whatever kind of shit he had going on in the day. He fucking he was using every cylinder he had to work mm-hmm. on that that question. He was really thinking about it, and to me that was I was I was really humbled by by his response to that to, to, to the effort he was putting in to to articulate a thoughtful answer, knowing how difficult it was for him to do so under those circumstances. Yeah, and uh, I thought, okay, well. There's got to be a fucking, there's got to be a, a solution. You know, <laughs> we, we, we got to find a way. We got to do something because uh, we can't have these. Like, I don't know how old he is, 21, 22. I don't want that kid to die, man. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want it. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't like the situation he's in. He wants out. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, it, it's just, fuck, it's hard. And then. Yeah, I, I I just that that one really uh, that really impacted me. I thought that was such a lovely moment, one of the most lovely moments we've had on our on this whole show. Like, to me, that's a question that doesn't get asked to individuals who are experiencing homelessness and addiction enough. Like that question of what do you want people to know about you, mm-hmm. and you weren't asking him what has hurt you the most you weren't asking, you know, what, what have you been through? But that question kind of conjures so much up because I, because I think a level of understanding, you know, the, the desire to be understood is sure there for, for, for these individuals, for every individual, for everyone, for everyone, absolutely and, everyone. And they, it, for this particular population of people who are who are living on the outskirts of our society, it takes so little to, I mean, just just treating someone, you know, with respect and uh, kindness, just like you would anyone else, yeah, means a lot to somebody who's living under those circumstances, and to give an individual an opportunity to express themselves in that way i think uh there's power in that because most of the time a lot of these people are focused on survival really you know mm-hmm. where am i you know i gotta do this to you know if you ask him what the hardest thing most of them are, will respond the hardest thing is like not being dope sick yeah right so th- that's the constant battle is is trying to find a trying to secure a supply. So you don't 
you don't often have an opportunity to to to, to reflect really even right because mm-hmm. you're either you're either up you're either down or you're hunting mm-hmm. so and and if you're having a a difficult day either difficult day at work or 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 on the street or whatever you're doing and you're using a substance to to cope with that difficulty to cope with that emotional difficulty the stress the anxiety whatever it may be the rhetoric and then you can hear it in that episode where you ask that question and it's like it's almost like poking through a cloud of smoke or like just sort of parting that mm-hmm. and there's this perception to me one of the most you know derogatory things i hear or, or read in the comment sections online is the idea that people like these people that you talk to are zombies i've heard that term yeah and this dehumanizing language mm-hmm. and you hear when someone is asked what do you want people to know about you and it and it generates that level of an emotional response or that much pause uh you could you could feel it parting parting that cloud mm-hmm. um remarkable and ima- just imagine if that was if that was m- something that was more incorporated into our society as a whole just like asking that question yeah you know the the, the guy who's having road rage or <laughs> <laughs> or f- freaking out in the grocery store or something like that. Like if someone yeah. just said like, what's going on? What do you, what do you want us to know about you right now? Yeah. yeah what? Cause it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's obvious. It's obviously all the stuff that uh, came before in that person's day that led to the road rage or whatever. I mean, that's <laughs> almost always the case, but yeah. But yeah, it really does come down to that. Doesn't it? It's like people want, just the, the tiniest of an opportunity to express uh, themselves to the world in a way that somehow hopefully makes people understand a little bit more about where they're coming from, what their circumstances are and who they are as a person, mm-hmm. as an individual. It's um, yeah. And, and I don't, and to me, this is one of the, we've talked about it in, when we were talking about our, explaining safe supply or the benefits of safe supply being that it establishes a, a relationship or a connection with a healthcare team with a people with a group of people who are providing a service it's building trust it's pre- build, building safety to come back and know that that when i come into that pharmacy to get my meds nathan will be there and maybe if i'm having a shitty day or really struggling maybe i can tell him something that i need mm-hmm. to tell him or he'll ask the right question. And I think it's good to remember, or I would, when I think back to when I was working in the ER or what I would want to say to you as someone who's working with safe supply is that like, that doesn't have to be an endpoint. Like that is already a success. If, if, if we're making that kind of a connection with someone that's already a win. The win doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the end result of them either getting clean and hopefully surviving or the negative outcome of them dying. The win is happening in those moments each time. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, too many people are focused on, well, for one thing, I, there seems to be a big misunderstanding about the, the actual, the focus of safe supply. People seem to think that it's somehow related to 
getting the person off of drugs. Mm -hmm. Like they don't, they don't understand that it's the point of safe supply is to keep that person alive Mm -hmm. so that they can go on to make more decisions for better or for worse. That's it. That's where the program ends. So I'm trying to explain that to people uh, online and I tell you it's an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. They think safe supply is, is some kind of a weird magic uh, trick that is somehow going to get people off of drugs. And so (laughs) it's not, it might help. uh, Well, it certainly would help if somebody was motivated to lower their dose through a taper. I mean, if if you gave people access to uh, like correctly dosed fentanyl and uh, they had a unlimited, unlimited supply and they wanted to come off it, then they could taper themselves off. I know that can be done because I've done it myself, not off of fentanyl, but I've, I've tapered myself off of, um, oxycodone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I know that's, that's like, uh, these days that's like a town all three in comparison to what the fuck is out there now. But yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, that, that was the other thing I think over the last little while here, the other, the other thing that's really being brought home for me is the overwhelming power of this substance how different mm. how how monumentally significantly more powerful fentanyl is than anything else that we've faced before mm-hmm. it's just i didn't understand you know when i see the safe supply program trying to counter or at least you know provide some relief from withdrawal and the doses I'm seeing, I I just couldn't, I was shocked. I was absolutely yeah. shocked. And then when I talk to people about what they, they require to get through the day, I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't need, I don't know how to put this in perspective for people, but I would have thought that that's like, uh, there is a, a general understanding about opioids that, if you continue to, you know, slowly increase the dose, um, generally there's, there's no ceiling based on genetics. Eventually you'll get to a point where your respiratory system starts to fail and, and, and that might kill you, but you, you can actually go a lot higher with, with some of these, especially mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical doses than people would believe. But the fentanyl doses that people are ingesting right now, I, I, I can't, I cannot believe that they, and then they're functional. Some of them are functional and quite coherent. Like mm-hmm. they're walking around. You wouldn't be able to tell this person is on enough heavy opiate to, I mean, I, if you gave some of these doses to the biggest guy we've you could find, I mean, they're, they're going to hit the, the deck and you're going to yeah. be Narcan and you know, using Narcan after Narcan, trying to bring it back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't know. That's the other thing. Narcan is is almost not cutting it anymore. Yeah. Each resuscitation is taking more and more and more and more. We need better weapons. Yep. Yeah. And you don't, all the while, you don't know if there's a benzo in there. Yeah, you don't know. If and if there is, then the Narcan won't work anyway, even if it is a, if it's a reasonable or lower dose of, of an opioid. Mm-hmm. Um if there's a benzo in there, you need, you need an X8, right? So 
I'm going to pose a question to you here before we we wrap this up. Okay. And uh, it's something that I've been thinking about. It's controversial, let's say. But you know how we have do not resuscitate orders that you could sign when you're in the hospital and you're in rough shape. I'm not advocating for this, but I'm I'm thinking in some cases I'm posing the question, is it reasonable if the person has significant, you know, if their faculties are are there and they've got, uh, you know, they're they're with it enough to make a decision of this magnitude. Should we be allowing these people to to actually sign basically no Narcan, like I, I'm sick of this type thing? What do you think oh, about man. that? That's an interesting question. And this is in our in the context in our province and in our country with uh, medically assisted dying yeah, being the, a thing. The states already thinks we're barbarians. Yeah. Because of medically assisted dying. Like I hear the you see the stories down there in the news. Canada allows 15-year-old to die uh, via their medically, which is total bullshit, to qualify yeah. for MAID requires all sorts of different things. It's a very complex process, but it's, the it's. I mean, for God's sake, have some empathy. If you were living in pain that was like an 8 out of 10 your whole life, what the fuck kind of life is that? You want to keep going? Right. No, you don't. So I see some people who are in so much pain they are in such rough shape and they're being Narcan weekly. You know, are we, are we helping that person? That's the question. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think um, the conversations that you had this in the, these last episodes and, and many, many, many other examples that we know tells me that individuals are, can still be competent decision makers uh, in many, many ways. If you are using a substance or addicted to a substance, that doesn't mean that you're not a competent decision maker. Not at all. Yeah. I, uh, I would, I would say that, I don't know, 80% of the people I see out there, could make that decision. Mm -hmm. I would, I would respect their decision either way. Mm -hmm. And in having that conversation, it tips the, the idea of, of addiction as a disease into, it tips it more towards addiction as a disease, because if we are comfortable with someone with a chronic illness saying, uh, do not resuscitate. If I have heart failure or, or some sort of terminal illness, and I say, do not resuscitate, even if I'm not imminently going to die, even if it's, this is something that maybe, maybe further down the road, but we're, uh, we're able to sign those papers, then I, then I don't see why not. I don't see why that couldn't be at least a conversation. Right. I don't know how you pose that conversation. And maybe that is an interview question that would be very interesting to ask this demographic. Mm -hmm. it's a tough one man because i think both of us personally personally have been in a spot where we may have said fuck it i want to die right or where you where you don't care like you would 
once you're out of it. That's right. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, very, very tough kind of thing to, to ponder. But, um, you know, if we're talking about real autonomy here and dealing with this, this problem on, uh, I, I just, I guess the concern I have is that I, at this rate, I just, I don't, I, I don't know what to do other than, you know, like we've, we've talked about half measures. We've talked about quarter measures. Mm-hmm. I don't see a politician having the, 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 even the power to do what's necessary here as far as like, uh, you know, trying to, to, to set up a, a program where you would be able to access, uh, a potent, like, uh, like actually fentanyl or, or something that was in a controlled dose that you knew wasn't going to kill you. I mean, it, man, it's such a complex problem. It's, it's so hard. We've looked at it from many angles and Jesus, I, it, it just, the, the closer I look, the more I learn about it. I just, I, I just don't know that we are equipped to, to do anything other than kind of you know, what we're doing now, which is, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, it's like, uh, kind of feels like ventilators during COVID. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, we thought that we thought that was the, the good, the answer. And then we, we figured out that it wasn't the answer and, uh, man, it's fucking hard. But I think, I think it, to ha- it, it is a bigger discussion. And I think to have those discussions, there's so much value in that. And even with that interesting point that you just brought up uh, about do not resuscitate, I think that's a question for us to explore further down the road here and to, to bring in, bring in some people to, to talk about that too, maybe. Yeah. Well, I'm trying, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Maine, who works here in Kelowna, uh, incredibly uh, intelligent, uh, charismatic, experienced educated this guy is front lines he is progressive he he really cares he's doing his best and uh he's gonna he's gonna uh try he's very busy but he's gonna try to make make some time here to to come on the show and i'm very interested in in hearing from him and and getting his perspective on this you know you know i like i like asking the question you know, if you were given complete control of the situation, you know, you were like a despotic leader, what would you, what kind of, you know, strategies would you use to deal with this? And uh, what do you see in that's working? What do you see in that's not? What's the problem? What are we doing wrong? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if nothing else, it's uh, it's an interesting, complex problem that is very important to uh, make people aware of. So big time. That's one thing we can do, I guess. Yep. Did Did you have anything else uh, from those that you wanted to? I, no, I don't think so. I um, I think they were really great. I think they added added value to the conversation. It added a uh, added a voice, for, at least for our platform, because mm-hmm. um, I know that we're not the first people to do this, or other other podcasts that have done that, and and some YouTube channels that have done it really really well. But I think for our specific discussion it's it added a lot of value there so i appreciate mm-hmm. you 
appreciate you doing it because it was kind of uncharted territory for us and it you nailed it so uh yeah thanks man it was definitely a challenge but uh a worthy challenge i think yeah. so all right we will leave it there and uh yeah we'll probably do some more of those in the future and uh ponder the questions that we talked about today and hopefully get uh some more guests here soon yeah look forward to it all right buddy we will uh talk to you soon and we'll talk to everybody out there soon as well bye everyone yep see you soon